0: How about open recent. Yes. Oh, it's because I misspelled it. That's why I couldn't find it. Okay. So, uh, do you guys have access to Mandeville right now? Um. So, if you're looking at Mandeville on the web, um. So, the. Just quickly, what would a plot summary? We did this a little bit already, but um, and it's not really a plot, but but it is a plot. Quickly, what would the plot summary of the fable of the bees be? B's B. Oh, isn't this interesting? It's a problem of collective action. <laughs> Everyone is waiting for someone else to say it. It's game theory. It, well, not the fable of the bees or the problem of collective action? Yes. <laughs> nice. Good one. Um, is it The Fable of the Bees that's game theory? No, just like okay. the <laughs> All right, it's a problem collective action. It's game theory. Um, yeah, I was just looking at a paper, actually, on plane flight, how, you know, it's really bad, um, a really bad use of carbon dioxide. Um, but almost every tourist flyer, which is what most non-business class flyers are, are actually free riders in a good way which is that we're just filling up seats that would otherwise be empty. So are we doing anything bad um, to the atmosphere by filling up those seats? And the answer is trivially, yes, but the planes are going to go anyhow. So uh, the question is, what do you do to try to get people to fly less when individual (coughs) virtue won't do it? That is, if you don't fly, you just won't be filling up an empty seat. Yeah? Isn't that just like uh, like Walmart is a or Amazon is a scummy company, so nobody should buy stuff from Amazon, but even if you don't buy stuff from Amazon, Amazon's going to continue to exist. Isn't that logic? No, it isn't. It's a logic of free riding, but it's a virtuous kind of free riding. So the idea, the idea of being a free rider is that the train is going to go anyhow. And so if you don't pay your fare, if you if you hop a turnstile, you're actually not costing anything except opportunity cost for to the MTA or uh, by doing that, or to the T by doing that. The train is going to go anyhow. If you were to walk, it would make absolutely no difference to um, what happens to the T. So you have a choice of walking from Park Street to Fenway, or you can jump a turnstile and get on the green line from Park Street to Fenway, because you have no money. And you jump the turnstile because it's not going to make any difference to the T that you've done that, right? Everyone understands that that's how free riding works, that, that it makes no difference to the T that you've done it because otherwise you'd have walked, so it's not like you have taken money away from them. You've taken a ride away from <coughs> them, but it's not a ride that they could have sold to anyone else. And therefore, from their point of view, it makes absolutely no difference From your point of view, you got to Fenway instead of having to trudge trudge through the ice and the snow. So we all agree that that's okay to do? How come we don't agree that that's all okay to do? Because if everyone did it, there would be a problem. Yeah, because what has to happen, and this is a problem of collective action, is what has to happen is that people do pay to, for the service, and if they pay for the service, that's what keeps the service in business. And free riders are not paying for a service that they're using, and it's the fact that there are potential customers who could pay for that service but aren't means that, the, that they're getting a service that they're not paying for and that the paying customers, therefore, have to pay more for. So in any individual case, you may say, I would walk to Fenway and it would make no difference and you'd be a free rider, but in that individual case, you're still acting in a way that if everyone acted that way, the T would collapse. And do you know, since we're going to be talking a little bit about Kant, do you know what Kant's categorical imperative is? Has anyone read any Kant um, besides, of course, The Analytic of the Beautiful, which you will have read for today? Right, right, good. Which you will have read for Monday, especially contemplating the exam that's coming up. Um, Categorical imperative, anyone? So what Kant says, this is one idea of virtue or one idea of morality, is that you should do everything you should do. You should do as though... You should only do those things that you could imagine it would be a universal law that all people should do. In other words, you can't treat yourself as special. You must act in such a way that if, that you would regard it as a good thing if everyone acted in that way as well. So the reason you shouldn't lie is not, for Kant, is not because you might harm someone by telling a lie, which is a good reason not to, but, you know, if you tell a white lie, which Kant would never do, the idea of telling a white lie is you're actually making someone feel better about themselves by by telling them a white lie. But Kant is against that because what that would then mean is that you are acting in such a way that you think it's okay for anyone to lie at any time. And so only do those things that would that you would regard as something that could be in conformity with a universal law for all thinking beings for all rational beings don't treat yourself as special don't treat your situation as special so why, why shouldn't you free ride because if everyone free rode there would be no possibility of riding to begin with and even if a particular free ride is doing no harm, you still, and this is this is, uh, maybe Kant's way of thinking about collective action, you still need not to do it because you have to act as though you were representing everyone in what you do and what you would agree that everyone should be permitted or allowed to do. Does that make sense to people? It's it's a very... Kant, Kant derives a lot from this, and... But that's the that is one way of putting the categorical imperative is only act as though your action would be in conformity with a universal law that you think should exist. Not that it necessarily does exist. you don't have to go to the Ten Commandments for the universal law um the, it's you know you might find biblical injunctions against masturbation, but you might say to yourself, There's no reason that I would object to universal permissiveness for masturbation. And therefore it wouldn't be a sin, even though the Bible says it's a sin. So it's not you're not looking at God's law, you're not looking at religious law. You are looking at what you yourself would accept as a universal law and not a law and where you wouldn't have a private law. Do you know what word that we use a lot these days, um, disapprovingly, that means literally private law. So the Latin word for law is lex legis. That is um, the L-E-G, like legislation, means law-making from the Latin word um, L-E-G, the Latin root L-E-G, which (coughs) means law. And the Latin word for private is essentially private, prevase. So what would a private law be? Privilege. Privilege. Privilege means a different law for you than for everyone else, or a different law for some than for others. So the idea for Kant is that there should be no privilege, that you should always act not out of privilege but out of a sense of universal law. So a free rider is taking a liberty, is regarding himself or herself as privileged to do this. And if everyone did that, then you wouldn't have universal law. You would just have a game theoretical clash of private laws. And that's why you shouldn't free ride. That's a Kantian argument against free riding. But what happens with plane flights is that planes are very expensive to fly. And most of that expense is borne by business travelers. And then, but there, then there's some empty seats in flights that are filled by people who are who are paying three or four times as much as you pay if you get a seat on kayak. And if you get a seat on kayak, what you're getting is a seat that the airline is not going to fill otherwise. And so you're getting a good deal because the airline is getting the $300 that they would otherwise not get to give you a flight that is actually probably costing them more like $500 a seat on average. So what's happening is the plane is going to go anyhow. You are free riding, or at least cheap riding, discount riding on the plane, and your discount ride is something that the airline actually wants you to do. (coughs) Because it means that they make a little bit more money out of it, but they would fly that plane whether you're discount riding on it or not, and they're just offering you not—they're offering you a cheap seat, not a free seat, but a cheap seat. So you can be morally virtuous and say no, given the um, global warming, I'm never going to fly on a plane. But that's not going to make any difference because that plane is going to go anyhow, and. It's not that you're free riding on something that other people are therefore bearing the cost of. You're free riding only because there actually is a free ride available and it's been offered to you. So you're making no difference if you, if you take a flight at, at kayak prices. You're making no difference to the CO2 that's being admitted in the atmosphere. So how do you get people to fly less? Basically, you have to have everyone agree that they're going to fly less, and that's the problem of collective action. So the problem then in Mandible is not quite a problem of collective action, but it is a problem that he's thinking about, which is how do markets work, what do markets do, and the fable of the bees is essentially in one line, what's the moral actually gives you the moral at the end, but what is the moral? Yeah? Isn't it something like you can't have both, like all the luxuries and like pleasures of a society and still be moral? Yeah, and w- so which, which side is he on? The side of not, not morality. Right, yes. that's the important thing. The side of not morality. Why? Um I think sort I think sort of based off what you were saying because it wouldn't matter anyway if like one person chose to be moral like the rest of society would still want like like be greedy or like corrupt and so it wouldn't matter if like one person chose to be moral because society is already like this and they're not prone to changing. Okay, there that. So that would, be that, the moral, that would be like not flying on a plane where the empty seat is going to go anyhow, and you're not flying on it, it makes no difference. But he actually makes a stronger argument, which is he compares a moral society to an immoral society. He compares a society in which... These are bees. He's not talking about people, obviously, um, as he makes clear from the start. So you shouldn't think that he's talking about um, people who might sue him or throw him in prison for what he's saying about them. He's just talking about bees. It's, it's not even the birds, just the bees. So the comparison that he makes is comparison between a society of selfish, greedy people and how they interact with each other and a society of virtuous people for whom morality is a kind of universal law where they all agree that they're going to behave morally and not be self-dealing and not attempt to um, live in in spendthrift ways and not engage in conspicuous consumption, to use Veblen's term again, and not do all the sorts of things that the super-rich do, but that everyone does to the extent that they can. And that is... That's what happens at the end of the Fable of the Bees, is that we get a beehive that doesn't act that way anymore. And the question now is, which hive is better? The hive in which people are bribing jurors and drinking too much and wearing costly stuff and changing fashions every year, or the hive in which people are behaving like puritanical America, let's say, in the 17th century? in which people are not um, not not being spendthrift or profligate at all and are treating each other with complete just uh, just 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 are interested in the necessities of life and have put luxury aside so and ant- what's the what economically what is the anti-luxury argument for what a good economy would be. How many of you? Yeah, go ahead. You, you know, like, like, but like, I just recently read, like, Padio going on about how people spend so much on jewelry in Paris that, like, enough to feed, uh, you know, sort of people who are not well fed in other types of world. And that sounds like, a, you know, on the face of it, a very uh, well. It, it 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 does violate a moral common sense. The idea that oh look, you bought jewelry. Like, you know, so much money spent in Paris on jewelry, and that money could have been used, like put, put could have been put to better use, mm-hmm. feeding people who are hungry. That's not so kind of it against luxury. So. <coughs> yeah. So one argument against it is that. Um, it's essentially the argument of inequality. It's uh, There's a book that came out a few years ago by Thomas Piketty, some of you may know, which is about the um, extent of inequality in the world. And it's it's enormous. And some of you know the statistics that the top, the richest 400 people in the United States own as much as the bottom 80% of the people in the United States. So if you just imagine that these 400 people were reduced to average wealth, that would double the wealth, uh, and, and the, the rest of their wealth were redistributed, that would double the wealth of the bottom 80%. So 400 people just have to lead normal lives, and everyone else has double, or at least the bottom 80%, who are the ones who need it most, have double, would get double what they have now. So that is a redistribution of wealth. There's someone, I think her initials are, oh, I don't know, AOC, who is essentially um, pushing that view. And then there's someone else, I don't remember her initials, maybe IT, um, who thinks, no, 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 no Americans, unlike, except for me, Americans really want to work for their money, as she said the other day. So, um, So that's an argument that when you have luxury and when you have the idea of wealth being something that people do anything they they can to get there'll be winners and losers and the losers will lose a lot that would make their lives better whereas what the winners are getting is stuff that doesn't in fact make their lives that much better Than if they were comfortable. The difference between comfort and luxury, sure, it's great, but you probably need a thousand times the wealth to live better than to live to live ten times as well as an upper middle class person. You'd probably need a thousand times as much money to live ten times as well. And you know, ten times as well as an upper middle class person is ridiculously well. Um, and but if it costs a thousand times as much money, that is that doesn't seem right. So that's one um, argument, which Mandeville actually discusses, although he discusses it in a somewhat different way. The basic idea then is that is so. Here's a moment from King Lear. How many of you have read King Lear at some point? I know I've asked you this before. Um, so Gloucester, who is blind is being led by someone he imagines as a beggar and what he at some point when this uh, person leads him to the place that he wants to go or agrees to lead him to the place where he wants to go Gloucester gives this beggar who's also a madman a purse that is he gives him some money and he says to him here take this purse thou whom the heaven's plagues have humbled to all strokes, that I am wretched makes thee the happier. So Gloucester, who was an earl who had been rich, who had been extremely successful, now he's fallen as low as he thinks he can fall. And then he says, well, there's, it's a closed system. It's a zero-sum game. That I am wretched makes thee the happier. Heavens deal so still. Let this always be the case, that if the rich person is made poor, the poor will be made happier by that fact, which is what's happening now, because I'm giving you this money to lead me to where I want to go. Let the superfluous and lust-dieted man, so that's the rich man, it's an amazing phrase, the superfluous and lust-dieted man, Man that slaves your ordinance, that is, makes the laws of heaven, it enslaves, that man enslaves the laws of heaven, that slaves your ordinance, that will not see because he does not feel. So the man who will not see the poverty around him because he does not feel. Gloucester is now blind. He's been blinded. In the play, he was blinded at an act earlier. And now that he's blind, he understands that the rich are the ones who do not see, that will not see because he does, doth not feel. Let that man feel your power quickly, he says again to the heavens. Let that man feel your power quickly. So, distribution... Should undo excess and each man have enough. So that is um, WS, not AOC, talking about redistributing the wealth. Distribution should undo excess and each man have enough. Or earlier in King Lear, um, Lear himself. Sorry, let me just find this. Is this not the, oh, it's not the whole play. That's, that's why. Why didn't anyone tell me? Am I taking Lear entire play? All right. Yeah, they screwed up. Okay. So Lear is the, Lear is the king of England, but now he's been brought to abject poverty, and there's a storm going on. And he's out alone in the storm. And he kind of addresses it. And he says something similar to what Gloucester will say later. He says to his fool, his attendant, Prithee, go in thyself. Seek thine own ease. This tempest will not give me leave to ponder on things would hurt me more, but I'll go in. And he says, go, you first. And then he addresses the world. And everyone out in the storm who he knows is out there somewhere, all the homeless in the world, and says, you houseless poverty. Then he notices the fool hasn't gone in, and he thinks of him, and he says, nay, get thee in. I'll pray, and then I'll sleep. And then he addresses the storm again. Poor, naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. So who, wherever you are, undergoing suffering the pelting of this hideous of this pitiless storm how shall your household excuse me how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides your looped and windowed raggedness defend you from seasons such as these looped and windowed raggedness oh i have taken to little care of this take physic pomp that is learn from this, take your medicine you pompous figures, you people who dress pompously, who dress in luxury um, which Lear is noticing the luxury of the rich and the simultaneous poverty of the poor take physic pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou mayest shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. So again, the superflux, what makes you superfluous, that should be redistributed to the poor. So one argument, and it's a standard argument, and the argument that we're all brought up on, more or less, is that inequality, just as... as, uh, um, An aesthetic or a moral slash aesthetic idea means that some people will experience great pleasure and other people will experience great poverty and wealth could be redistributed in such a way that the pleasure of those who feel great pleasure goes down somewhat. And, you know, that's unfortunate. But the improvement in the lives of the poor is so much better a thing than the the degeneration of the lives of the rich, that of course it should happen. And that would be a Kantian rule, that if you didn't know who you were going to be in American society, for example, if it were all luck of the draw, if you were shown a picture before you were born of American society or of the society of the whole world. So you're shown a picture before you're born. And what you're told is you're about to be turned into an infant and you're not going to know anything. What, what you're choosing now is something you will forget as soon as you're born. But you're about to be turned into an infant. And look at the distribution of and the numbers of people in the world. So you'll be one of them. Now, do you choose Earth where we have the demographies that we know or do you... Use do you choose planet equal where everyone is pretty happy and you don't know who you're going to be? So some people might say, yeah, sure, I'm going to mortgage my house for a lottery ticket because I'm, I'd get rich if I won. And that would that's what it would be like if you chose Earth. If you, because if you're hoping to be in the 0.1% of people on Earth who live pretty well, your chances of being in that 0.1% are 1 in a 1,000. If you choose to be instead on planet equal, where you would be in the 99% of the people on planet equal who don't live as well as the 0.1% on Earth, but who still live kind of well, then if you didn't know who you were going to be, it would make no sense for you to pick Earth as the place to be born when you could be born on planet equal. And that's a way of of describing what Kant is saying and why Kant would say redistribution, or why it would be a Kantian idea, that it should be a universal law, that people have pretty much the same access to the same goods. So Kant wouldn't necessarily say that, but it would be a Kantian idea. So these are standard moral ideas. And it's stuff that everyone's been brought up with in one way or another, and everyone is aware of as a standard moral idea. And if you defend the opposite idea, then you use words like innovation and risk taking, and those who are who are um, taking on the burden of possible losses in order to make society better as a whole. Why are you laughing? Just though, like I, I love phrases like the burden of innovation, the burden of leadership.
1: Yes, the burden of leadership. <laughs> oh, for you. It
0: just as it sounds. Yeah, but it's all those people who just work a hundred hours a week in their garages, and yeah, we know about the Bill Gateses and the Steve Jobs. But all those but they were the lucky ones, but if there weren't a thousand people doing that, we wouldn't have the great toys that we do and the 998 other people who did it um, and who failed and who ended up having really horrible lives they were that's the 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 group as a whole took this chance so that we could have nice things and so that's a good thing. So that's the that's um, like the Ayn Rand argument for capitalism, which is that there are people who are willing to put everything on the line, and it really is everything on the line because most of them lose. Most people who who do this sort of thing lose, and they lose everything by doing it. So it's not BS that they're putting everything on the line. They are putting everything on the line, and they lose. But that's not Mandeville's argument either. His argument is rather something like the reason selfishness and luxury is good are good as we say in English the reason selfishness and luxury are good is why? And he's really the first person to make this argument Why is a society of selfishness and luxury better than a society of of distribution and equality? Yeah? Like he says Uh, near virtue isn't going to help uh, a nation live. It's, gonna, it's not going to be able to prosper as well. Why not? Um. So the argument is 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 worth thinking about. So what are some examples that he gives? Let's um, let's just open to. There's a particular thing I want to look at, but but this isn't. Uh, I'm going to look at something at random. Um, I think I have it in an open tab, but the problem is I have about 300 open tabs. So we'll just do it this way. I really don't need fonts. Stop. Now I don't want to know all this. For this long introduction, I'm delighted by it. Um. <clears throat> okay, so if you, so at the beginning of the Fable of the Bees, what we find out is the bees live like men. And they do all the the same kinds of things that um, men did. And at first, it looks really bad, because we have all these selfish people. So what we have are the lawyers of whose art the basis was raising feuds and splitting cases opposed all registers that cheats might work might make more work with dipped estates. So if you've read Bleak House, this is a description of that that Lawyers really like to bill, and so they like to make things as legally complex as possible so they can send as many bills as they can to those whom they're working for, Michael Cohen. As word unlawful that one's own without a lawsuit should be known. So that's what lawyers do. Physicians valued fame and wealth above the drooping patient's health. So, again, doctors have an incentive not to make their patients healthy, but to make their patients need them which is to say to bring them to a a place where they survive, but not where they're healthy. So they valued above the drooping patient's health or their own skill. They valued fame and wealth. The greatest part studied instead of rules of art, grave, pensive looks, and and dull behavior to gain the apothecary's favor, the praise of midwives, priests, and all that serve at birth or funeral. So they get a lot of praise. And um, everyone is acting selfishly. So that's the first part that we get in the Fable of the Bees. Or all the bees, I'm sorry. All the bees are acting selfishly. So then what happens is Jove, or the king of the bees, says he's, he's tired of the bees acting this way. And... So he says he'd rid the bawling hive of fraud and did. So Jove gets rid of all the fraud, all this fraudulent, selfish activity in the hive of bees. The very moment it departs, the very moment fraud departs, and honesty fills all their hearts, there shows them, like the instructive tree, those crimes which they are ashamed to see, which now in silence they confess by blushing at their ugliness, So the instructive tree is the gallows tree. That is, now um, everyone can see all the crimes of their selfishness. And now they're blushing. And you can tell that they feel bad about all the selfishness and greediness they've shown before. And then what happens? But, oh, ye gods, what consternation. How vast and sudden was the alteration. In half an hour, the nation round meat fell a penny in the pound. The mask hypocrisies flung down from the great statesman to the clown, and some in borrowed looks well-known appeared like strangers in their own. The bar was silent from that day, for now the willing debtors pay, even what's by creditors forgot, who quitted them that had it not. So everyone is acting honestly. There's no more need for lawyers. The All debts are paid. There's no more debt going on. And the creditors are forgiving debt to the poor, but the poor are remembering debts that the creditors are forgiving, and they're paying them back. Those that were in the wrong stood mute and dropped the patch fixatious suit. So people who were suing each other and knew they weren't on the right side, they stopped suing. On which, since nothing less can thrive than lawyers in an honest hive, all except those that got enough with inkhorns by their sides trooped off. So, all the lawyers lose their jobs. Everyone starts being honest, lawyers lose their jobs. Justice Hanksome set others free, and after jail delivery, her presence being no more required with all her train and pomp, retired. So, we no longer needed jails because everyone is honest. First marched some smiths with locks and grates, fetters and doors with iron plates, next jailers, turnkeys and assistants, before the goddess at some distance, her chief and faithful minister, squire catch, the law's great finisher, bore not the imaginary sword but his own tools and axe and cord, then on the cloud the hoodwinked fair, justice herself was pushed by air, And about her chariot and behind were sergeants, bums of every kind, tipstaffs and all those officers that squeeze a living out of tears. So all these people who work for the law basically no longer have anything to do. Though physic lived, there's still medicine. While folks were ill, none would prescribe but bees of skill. So only really good doctors who knew what they were doing would prescribe um, remedies for diseases. No more late-night TV ads where the FDA has not, appro- has not um, approved or examined these claims, which through the hive dispersed so wide that none of them had need to ride, waived vain disputes and strove to free the patients of their misery. They just used their own drugs. The clergy, I'm, I'm just going through this quickly, um, the clergy was roused from laziness, and they didn't make the, the, the bees serve them, but they served themselves, exempt from vice, the gods with prayer and sacrifice. Just um, see if we can find one other good example. Vain cost is shunned as much as fraud. They have no forces kept abroad. Laugh at the esteem of foreigners and empty glory got by wars. They fight but for their country's sake when right or liberty's at stake. Now mind the glorious hive and see how honesty and trade agree. And the idea is that honesty and trade don't agree. That's what he's now about to show. So look at the glorious hive and see how honesty and trade agree. The show is gone it thins apace and looks with quite another face. And twas not only that they went by whom vast sums were yearly spent, so the rich who were just throwing money away, not only they disappeared, but who else disappeared with the rich? The multitudes that lived on them were daily forced to do the same. That is, they disappeared too. In vain to other trades they'd fly all were or stacked accordingly so what you have is too much supply and not enough demand if the rich are not throwing their money around on ridiculous toys the price of land and houses falls miraculous palaces whose walls like those of thieves were raised by play are to be let while the once gay well-seated household gods would be more pleased to expire in flames than see the mean inscription on the door smile at the lofty ones before. The building trade is quite destroyed. Artificers are not employed. No limner for his art is famed. Stone cutters, carvers are not named. So what happens is demand plunges if you, if people only buy what they need, demand plunges. This is what John Maynard Keynes famously called, anyone know? What is it? The paradox of thrift. What he specifically said in the middle of the Depression is, spend money, don't save. Saving is what is causing this depression. Saving money is the worst thing macroeconomically. Good for a family, bad for a macro economy. And so the paradox of thrift is, if you're saving money, if you're being careful, then people who are... You know, if you patch your jeans instead of buying new jeans, the jeans makers don't hire people to sew new jeans. And because they're not sewing new jeans, they're not buying the the spinach that you're growing in your backyard because they find that it's easier to go to, 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 to eat grass from their own backyard or something like that. So the paradox of thrift is that economies don't become less and less vibrant and that's what Mandeville is the first person to say that um, those that remained grow temperate strive not how to spend but how to live and when they paid their tavern score resolved to enter it no more so they pay off what they owe to um, their tab at the bar and then they don't go to the bar anymore so what happens to the bar goes out of business no vintners jilt in all the hive could wear now cloth of gold and thrive nor could call such vast sums advance for Burgundy and Ortolans so um, luxury restaurants, luxury food is no longer served, no longer eaten the courtier's gone that with his miss supped at his house on Christmas peas which are very expensive to have peas at Christmas time spending as much in two hours stay as keep a troop of horse a day The haughty Chloe, to live great, had made her husband rob the state, but now she sells her furniture, which the Indies had been ransacked for, contracts the expensive bill of fare, and wears her strong suit a whole year so she doesn't doesn't buy new clothes every three months, every season. So again, the clothes manufacturers go out of business. So the slight and fickle ages pass, and clothes as well as fashions last. Weavers that joined rich silk with plate and all the trades subordinate are gone. Still, peace and plenty reign, and everything is cheap, though plain. Kind nature, free from gardener's force, allows all fruits in her own course, but rarities cannot be had where pains to get them are not paid. So as pride and luxury decrease, so by degrees they leave the seas. Not merchants now, but companies remove whole manufactories. All arts and crafts neglected lie. Content, the bane of industry, makes them admire their homely store and neither seek nor covet more. So we're almost done with it, and then I'll let you go. So few in the fast hive remain. The hundredth part they can't maintain against the insults of numerous foes, whom yet they valiantly oppose. So the hive just disappears. Everyone leaves. The whole society decays. Till some well-fenced retreat is found, and here they die or stand their ground, no hireling in in their armies known, but bravely fighting for their own. Their courage and integrity at last were crowned with victory They triumphed not without their cost. for many thousand bees were lost, hardened with toils and exercise. They counted ease itself self-advice, which so improved their temperance that to avoid extravagance, they flew into a hollow tree, blessed with content and honesty. So then the moral. That is, so if you do this, great, you get to live in a society where there are a few of you who live in a tree if you behave virtuously, and stop cheating each other, and stop trying to outdo each other. And then the moral is this. Then leave complaints. Fools only strive to make a great and honest hive. It's a, Only a fool would try to make a great hive into an honest one. This is what people say about de Blasio in New York. That is, that, de Blasio, that New York is certainly a hive where everyone is cheating everyone else, and it makes New York, the second greatest city in the country, after Boston, um, makes New York the greatest city in the world. And it's the behavior of people in New York that do that. So only fools strive to make a great and honest hive. To enjoy the world's conveniences, be famed in war, yet live in ease without great vices is a vain utopia seated in the brain. So to enjoy the world without vices is utopia. Fraud, luxury, and pride must live while we the benefits receive. So we get benefits out of the fraud, luxury, and pride that other people engage in. Hunger's a dreadful plague, no doubt, yet who digests or thrives without? So the very fact that we feel hunger is a good thing, and the same is true for society. Not that it's good to have hungry people, but it's good that there are things that cause people to look to themselves. Do we not owe oh, the growth of wine to the dry, shabby, crooked vine, which, while its shoots neglected, stood, choked other plants, and ran to wood. So it's really good that we're drinking wine, because otherwise um, grape vines would just be weeds, and they would destroy everything else. But because we're drinkers, because we love our wine, we're really careful about viticulture, and that's good for everyone. But bless us with its noble fruit, as soon as it was tied and cut. So vice is beneficial found. That's the crucial thing. As necessary to the state as hunger is to make them eat. Bare virtue can't make nations live in splendor. They that would revive a golden age must be as free for acorns as for honesty. So greed is good, to quote Gecko. And that is what Mandible is saying. So we're going to look on Monday at a particularly cynical note of Mandible's. And that's what we're going to start with today. But that's what we'll we'll look at on Monday. Read the Kant. It's not that long. Read the Adam Smith. It's not that long. And um, bring in the Mandible again as well. All right. Have a good weekend.